usually in most cases, it's less expensive to purchase the hay if you are going to be feeding hay and then you're bringing nutrients from, you know, some other place and then you are having the animals, you know, digest that hay and spreading those nutrients and adding fertility to your, to your own system. Winter feeding is one of the biggest expenses on most livestock operations. In this episode of Voices from the Field, INCAT Agriculture Specialist Lee Reinhardt and INCAT Regenerative Grazing Specialist Justin Morris discuss some strategies grazers can use to plan for winter stockpile during the summer grazing season. Stockpiling is simply allowing forage to accumulate during a portion of the growing season so that it can be grazed during the dormant period when forage isn't growing. In particular, Lee and Justin focus on stockpiling a portion of their summer pastures to reduce the costs associated with feeding hay. Let's listen. Hello and welcome to the Atra Voices from the Field podcast. For more than 35 years, the National Center for Appropriate Technologies Atra Sustainable Agriculture Program has been helping farmers and ranchers grow nutritious food and operate successful farm and ranch businesses, all while reducing high, co- high cost inputs. I'm NCAT Agriculture Specialist Lee Reinhardt in the Pennsylvania office, and in this episode, I'm going to be speaking with NCAT Regenerative Grazing Specialist Justin Morris to discuss some strategies that grazers can use to plan for winter stockpile during this summer's grazing season. Hi, Justin. Welcome. What's up? Hey, thank you, Lee. Um, Just great to be here. It's just... uh... Wonderful getting to visit with you. I I wish we could be in person doing this visit, but I am grateful that we got the technology to at least do it virtually, despite us being 1,800 miles apart. I know, right? Uh, That's that's true. I mean, uh, we've been able to do some pretty cool collaborations, you know, just all because of Zoom and Teams and stuff like that, you know, um, with webinars. And now we get to do this podcast, you know, Yesterday, Justin and I were sitting about talking about content for various podcasts and such. And, you know, we said, Justin said, well, you know, you know, we had a lot of success with the webinar that we had. We, we can talk about things um, that came up, you know, in, in the advanced grazing webinar that you can actually find on our website, you know, and that people are interested in. And also there's, you know, this seems to be really kind of a salient idea right now with respect to, to stockpiling. So whenever he said that, I said, oh, you know what, that's got to be what we talk about today, you know. So we've been thinking a lot lately about energy use here at Atra and all over the country, especially given the high cost of fuel and fertilizers. Uh, We've developed a toolkit, which is on our website, that's specifically designed to help farmers and ranchers, you know, adopt practices to reduce synthetic fertilizer use. Well, today we're going to kind of continue that discussion, especially with regards to the input intensive practice of winter hay feeding. So, Justin, um, start us off here to begin with, what exactly is stockpiling, for those who may not know, and how can it help grazers reduce energy costs? Well, that's a really good question. Um, Well, simply put, you know, stockpiling is allowing forage to accumulate during a portion of the growing season so that it can be grazed during the dormant period when forage isn't growing. So that's just kind of the simple definition of what it is. You know, we're just we're just deciding to to hold off on grazing a certain part of our summer pasture, but then you know reallocating that for a later point in time when when plants aren't growing. And the the reason why grazers stockpile a portion of their summer pastures, it's really to reduce the costs associated with feeding hay. Uh, if you look at most uh, ranch. Uh, or livestock farm budgets, you know, you'll see, you know, land costs uh, are usually probably the most expensive. Then usually you'll have um, uh, animal depreciation costs, especially on mothers, whether it's cows or ewes. Uh, And then usually following right on the heels of that are your winter feeding. So those winter feeding costs, they can be, you know, maybe the third largest cost in, in a livestock operation that's keeping animals year round. And so one of, you know, one of my goals is, you know, how can I help producers to go after that? Uh, because it is one of the highest expenses. And, you know, since pretty much all the winter feeding 
uh, strategies that I've seen, whether you're using a, you know, a hay buster behind a 120 horse tractor, or you're using a bell bed off of the pickup uh, to go out and unroll bales to animals. You know, when you look at all these different types of winter feeding strategies, they're usually very mechanized. You know, we're using either a tractor or a pickup truck, and we're using those, you know, every single day throughout the winter. And that all requires diesel fuel uh, and equipment to do it, you know, and diesel fuel right now, here we are June 29th. Uh, and in my part of the world here in Southeast Idaho, uh, diesel is well over six bucks a gallon. And, uh, and, you know, we're looking at it to continue going up. And so, you know, anything that we can do to reduce the number of days um, on hay that we're feeding hay and then increase the time on pasture where livestock are grazing, you know, they're grazing forage that's two plus feet tall, that can really significantly reduce the expense of keeping livestock in the winter when no forage is growing. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense too, because um, I mean, it is a it it is a very like energy intensive process, right? Um, and we've got nutrients there, and either we're going to bale them up and bring them to the cows, or we can take the cows to the nutrients, right? And so that's kind of I think what we're looking at here. Hay feeding is really it's kind of an artificial input into that agri ecosystem, and and the more I think that we can disassociate ourselves with that, we can we can i think and we're going to talk about that a lot today like strategies and what the benefits are right for 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 building a stockpiling system you know we can be sustainable financially and ecologically a lot a lot better if we if we can reduce those costs associated especially with fuel right and with and with and then there's a fertilizer that goes into the hay fields and all of that kind of stuff as well um exactly yeah, I, I, I've often heard it said, and I, I think, you know, I, I feel that this is true, is that it's more important to stop making hay than it is to stop feeding hay. Because when you when you get into hay making, you know, you're talking about a tractor or two, you're talking about a mower, some rakes, a baler, and then usually, you know, you're either going to use the front load on your tractor to go and pick up those bales and put them on a trailer to haul them in mm -hmm. to the headquarters, or you're going to have, you know, really fancy operations that actually have a bale retriever that you just pull behind the tractor and you can just, you know, drive up beside the bale and then that bale will just, you know, has a, has a hydraulic arm that lifts that round bale or square bale onto the trailer, uh, uh, you know, using the tractor's hydraulics. And the thing is, is that uh, when it comes to hay making, uh, it is tremendously expensive. You know, right now, June, you know, June 29th, um, a lot of uh, alfalfa fields have been cut for their first time. Uh, and I'm looking at, you know, self-propelled swathers. I mean, if you go into any, if you look uh, online, you know, even for a used self-propelled swather, you know, what are you going to be spending on that? Um, and then you've got the, the maintenance costs that are associated with it. And, and and uh, and then that's just mowing, it, you know, you know, then you you're going to be, you know, raking it and then you're going to be bailing it. Well, yeah. And then there's the frustration of it, too. Many an afternoon I've spent in the middle of a hayfield underneath a baler, <laughs> you know, yeah. just yeah. trying to pull stuff apart and unwind wire and rethread things. And oh, my gosh, it was frustrating. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the, th the thing is, is it, it isn't like, you know. Uh, I'm saying that like, you know, like we're, we're anti-equipment uh, per se, but the more that we put machinery between the forage and the animal's mouth, the more expensive it, it just becomes to be able to raise animals. And so I look at it like, what can we do to reduce the amount of equipment that's right. between the forage standing and the animal's mouth and i think you know one one big way you know is well first off if you are making hay uh is it really cost effective for you to do that can you go out on the open market and buy the hay that you need rather than uh have bearing all the expense of maintaining all the equipment and everything your own personal equipment to do it yourself right and 
And, and I realize, you know, some people have misgivings about that because they want to have control over every aspect of the operation. They may think that, well, I can raise hay cheaper than I can go out there and buy it. But when you're looking at how, you know, costs are surging up, you know, especially with fuel, fertilizer, and then, you know, of course, anything associated that uses those things also goes up in cost over time. Usually, in most cases, it's less expensive to purchase the hay if you are going to be feeding hay, and then you're bringing nutrients from, you know, some other place, and then you are having the animals, you know, digest that hay and spreading those nutrients and adding fertility to your, to your own system, uh, to your own pastures. So, you know, I think one of the, the first big steps is, you know, if you are making your own hay, everyone needs to ask themselves a question, is it better to just be purchasing my hay? Can I do, can I do that at a lower cost compared to having all my own equipment and doing it myself? Now, a lot of people, what they'll do is they'll use really ancient equipment to get the cost down on making guilty, guilty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you'll be using a tractor that's 50 years old or you're using equipment that's really old. But the problem is, is the older the equipment gets, and you alluded to this, Lee, the older the equipment gets, the, the, the more you've got to factor in for downtime because, you know, stuff is wearing out. Equipment wasn't designed to last forever. And mm -hmm. sometimes finding spare parts and stuff like that for the really older equipment can get to be more of an issue. So I have, I have known, known of people that, you know, they'll say, I'm going to make my own hay. And the way I can do it cheaper than if I go out in the open market and buy it is because I'm running with equipment that's 50 plus years old. And, you know, that's everybody's choice, what they mm -hmm. want to do mm -hmm. and what they feel comfortable with. You know, some people just love making hay. You know, and, and you think about it, we are kind of a haymaking culture. We, 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 a lot of us like doing that. I mean, I have to confess myself. I mean, I love running a swather. I mean, yeah. I just, a I lot just, of us, a lot of us grew up in FFA and 4-H and on farms and stuff, bucking hay in the summer. That's what we did. You know, you mentioned that, you know, we're not, we're not against machinery. In fact, we love machinery, right? But machinery oh, yeah. comes, comes at a cost. And the forage is the forage is there, you know, it's it's a matter of how expensive do we want to make delivering it to the animal, right? So exactly. so whenever you think of like being a profitable uh, operation, right? You've got you've got two parts of the equation. Now you've got the revenue that you're gonna get from selling, you know, meat, milk, fiber, whatever, right? Live yep. animals. And then you've got the cost side as well, right? And a lot of people, yeah. what they're trying to do is they're trying to they're trying to increase their revenue to cover those costs, right? Um, and if you're operating at scale, maybe you can. But but the thing is, is if we can reduce the cost as much as we can, maybe we can get by with a little bit less revenue because that again, that's only one side. So that's right. You know, I mean, you know, most people do look at look, look at that at that gross income, not the net. So what is it about, you know, uh, those those gross earnings for costs, right? What are what considerations are there in there w whenever you're dealing with, you know, cost versus revenue on a hay specifically with respect to hay? Yeah, so on the on the cost side of the equation, you know, we're looking at okay, what what does it cost to make that hay, you know, if you're going to make it yourself or if you're going to go out and and buy the hay and and I, and I think maybe we mentioned this just a couple minutes ago. In most cases, uh, it costs less to purchase the hay from someplace else, import those nutrients, because you gotta, you got to factor in that when you do bring hay onto your place, it costs money to bring in that hay, but the fertilizer value of what's stored in that hay bale is pretty significant. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, it's not total cost when you bring the hay on to the place from from somewhere else. But the really what what our what our goal is or what our goal should be is to virtually eliminate the need for having having the hay in the first place. Now, in order to do that, though, a lot of times we have to look at checking out what our what our winter carrying capacity is on our operation 
Right. And so like, like, let's say, for example, if you've got five months of no plant growth going on, you know, if, if it's, if it's, you know, basically, you know, it might be mid-October through, you know, the end of March or, or, or middle of April or something like that. What, what we really have to be looking at is what can my land sustain on basically five months of no plant growth? And then, and that may require some looking at how many animals we're currently carrying. And we're, we're, we're used to associating with, you know, well, if I've got 200 head and this is what my revenue typically is, and these are what my costs are, but I'm feeding hay for five plus months. And so we have to look at, you know, what if the herd was reduced in size by maybe 25% it was 150 head? Could that 150 head be sustained on that five months of no, of no plant growth if we have a winter stockpile there in place? And then that way, what ends up happening is even though on the revenue side of the equation, we may have gone down from 200 head to 150 head. So yeah, that's going to impact the revenue side because you're not going to be selling as many animals. But if that allows you to transition from five plus months of hay feeding down to like maybe two months of hay feeding, or maybe something even less than that, then if you are dropping your costs by like, let's say, you know, 30%, but you're only dropping your revenue by 15 or 20%. Now you can see where, you know, if on the cost side of the equation, if we can make those things drop faster than the revenue side, then guess what? You actually, you know, that equation for profitability of being, you know, costs minus revenue, or I should say, you know, revenue minus costs, you know, depend on, you know, that's going to give you a number that's either going to be positive or negative. So that's, that's where we're looking at, um, we can actually be more profitable, maybe running a, a slightly smaller herd that then allows us the freedom to operate within the true carrying capacity of the operation that's based off of what we can graze, what the operation can sustain through the winter with minimal inputs. And then that opens up some really interesting you know, opportunities in the future. Well, it does, you know, and, you know, because as I'm as I'm thinking about this concept, you know, it what it does is it turns the standard carrying capacity, you know, herd numbers determination just on its head. Right. It, it, it really does. What we're talking about here is kind of using the winter carrying capacity of the pastures to actually determine your whole herd size. Right. Or your whole exactly. flock size. Right. Exactly. And then you can you can take advantage of for uh, surpluses. I mean, that you, you could have you could have periods of adjustment. You may pr- be producing more forage one year because and maybe you can actually bring back more animals. I think yesterday you and I were discussing the fact of, man, you may even open up an opportunity for you to add an enterprise during the summer by grazing stalkers or something as well That's to right. make, you know, something like this. Right. So. So in that in this sense, the whole goal of the grazing season then is not so much to maximize productivity and get production on those animals, although that's what that's going to happen. But our focus is all summer is to prepare for winter, right? Make sure that we make sure we have enough of that stockpile there to sustain that herd so that they can be productive and we can be profitable with lower costs. So, you know, and that's really cool. So you've mentioned a couple, but what are some other strategies that we can look at that, that, that grazers can think about, you know, thinking about transitioning to, you know, to a stockpile operation and it, in many places of the country, it can't be 12 months of grazing, right? Some places you're going to have to have some hay. It's always good to have a little in the barn, but we want to maximize as much as possible. So what are some other strategies I think that we could talk about in moving towards this transition? So before I get onto that, one thing that just kind of came to my mind as you were talking there was, um, you know, we talked about this, this, this change of a paradigm, you know, paradigm Mm -hmm. is how we how we view things based upon our own experience. Right. And, you know, traditionally we make hay, we make as much hay as we possibly can. Right. And that's what most, that's what a lot of livestock producers who make their own hay, that's what they're doing during the summer is they, the, the majority of their time is spent on, on uh, harvesting hay, 
getting it stored properly. And then that also means that in a lot of cases, there's a lot less of a priority actually placed on grazing management. And here's where there's been kind of a rub for a lot of producers where um, they, they spend so much of their efforts during the summer focusing on making sure that the hay harvests go, go very well. But then the grazing management oftentimes suffers because the priority is not on the grazing management, whereas it needs to flip the other way around. If we weren't spending as much time and focus on making hay all summer long, it would free us up to actually start to delve into and become better graziers and improve grazing management uh, over, over the entire growing season. So you know, there would be a, a definite uh, shift in, you know, how we're allocating our time if we decided to make, if we made the decision, okay, we're not going to, we're not going to be raising our own hay. We're going to, we're going to focus on, on grazing management, but we're going to bring in hay from the outside. Or, you know, another way to look at it is, well, maybe instead of me owning all the own equipment and me doing it myself and my family, maybe I hire a custom person to come in and take care of that for me. And usually the custom, the custom hay, hay crews, they usually have the very best equipment, usually very new equipment because that's their main gig. That's their main business. And they can come in, get it done fairly quickly while you can also be focusing on grazing management and making sure that the grazing is going along so that you can start to develop a stockpile into the future. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and the, the other thing that, that kind of came across my mind too, Lee, was I remember reading an article years ago and I loved, I, I love the emphasis of the article because it was, the article was entitled grazing while building your haystack. And it was basically, you know, the type of grazing management that would be involved that would allow you to continuously building up a stockpile throughout the summer so that you have a very significant stockpile going into the winter. Mm-hmm. And then changing that focus from, you know, as we, as you and I were talking about yesterday, when we were just, you know, hashing out what we were going to talk about, uh, the whole goal of summer grazing management the the major goal, the major driving force besides making sure that animals are getting arriving at the plants at the right time and they're getting the right amount of forage uh, for their needs is getting set up for wintertime. Because, you know, you live in Pennsylvania, I live in Idaho. I mean, here in Idaho, I mean, winter's five months and we have five months basically of no plant growth going on. And so what we do in the summer completely dictates what's going to happen in the winter. So the summer strategy, what we're doing with our time in the summer, whether we are really trying to perfect our grazing management and developing a stockpile or whether we're busy making hay is going to the outcome of that is going to be reflective in what goes on during the winter. And in the winter, you know, if, if all the animals have to go on is basically, you know, a grass that's only like six inches tall. That is not what we're talking about when we're talking about developing a a stockpile for winter grazing. What we're talking about here is stuff that is two plus feet tall. I'd say two feet tall minimum, if not considerably taller going into the winter so that if I do have, you know, pretty good snow cover, uh, the animals have to know that there's something down there worth getting for, mm-hmm. uh, you know, going to get. And, you know, if all you have is basically what we would call aftermath grazing type stuff, you know, four or five inches, maybe six inches tall type stuff, that is not significant enough for the animals to work, to go through the snow, to be able to get what little bit is there. We actually have to make sure that when we allocate this, that we we work back from when plant growth stops. So if in your area, if plant growth stops, basically end of September, you probably need to back up 60 days. So going to like August 1st, and then, you know, basically making sure that certain pastures that are going to be your stockpile, that no animals go in there from, from August 1st through September 30th. 
because you've got to allow those plants, you know, about a good 60 days to develop enough growth so that there's something significant there enough for the animals to go get once you have a foot or two of snow laying on top of it. Right. And that's probably one of the most important things is I think is that date, which is going to be different in different regions of the country. Right. Um, You know, is like when you're going to say, okay, we're just, we're going to push this out of the rotation. You know, you may have been able to, you know, work the, the, the grazing rotation through this stockpiled field in the spring and then maybe another rotation in the early summer, but then depending upon water availability and depending upon your, your first frost date and such like that, you know, you're going to have to start thinking, okay, back up 60 or so days and, you know, okay, that's, yep. that's, that's the dead stop right there. From now on, that field is gold because that's my carrying capacity throughout the exactly. winter that we've already determined herd size for. Right. Exactly. 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 Yeah. So so let's talk a little bit then about some more of these strategies, you know, you know, dealing with let's say somebody decides to do this and they're taking out some some of their land uh, for uh, for stockpiling. But maybe maybe they're having a little bit of trouble with their mm-hmm. rotation and grass growth. Maybe they've got a summer slump or something we know that we take land out of the grazing situation. There's a, we're putting perhaps more animals on smaller land unless we destock, you know, what are some of the, what are some of the strategies that we can use to manage that grazing land really well during the summer, especially to prevent overgrazing. Learn how to harvest the sun twice with practical information at NCAT's AgriSolar Clearinghouse. Get access to more than 400 peer-reviewed articles, the latest in AgriSolar news, and connect with farmers and solar developers who are working together to make the most out of our shared resources. We'll see you at agrisolarclearinghouse.org. So a big one is just whatever your current grazing management is right now. So if you are, and and this would be my first step, you know, Uh if we're going to want to stop overgrazing, and let's say you've only got four or five pastures per herd. So that herd is only rotating through maybe four or five fields. Um, That means right there that most likely you're overgrazing. And of course, and, and for, for those listening here, you know, overgrazing, overgrazing and severe grazing are two different terms. And a lot of times it's easy to get it confused and thinking that overgrazing is the same as severe grazing. So overgrazing is simply grazing a plant before it has had a chance to recover. And that only applies during the growing season. Whereas severe grazing is how deep, how close to the soil surface are you allowing animals to graze the plants down to? So, you know, you could have animals that are only in a paddock for one day, but then they're taking like 80, 90% of what's there. Okay. So that would qualify as something that's severely grazed, but it may not be overgrazing Mm -hmm. because if the animals leave and don't come back for, you know, until the plants are fully recovered then it wouldn't qualify as overgrazing. So if you've got, you know, only four or five fields, six fields, that you're, that, that herd or that flock is rotating in, in my estimation, that's not enough. The, the, the way that you're going to stop overgrazing, the way that you're going to prevent animals from grazing plants before they've had a chance to recover is that those four, five, six, eight fields should be divvied up into smaller subunits, you know, mm-hmm. smaller subunits, you know, we'll call paddocks. Uh, and we can use portable electric fence to take each one of those fields and divvy them down smaller because what that does is it starts buying you, it starts buying you recovery time over the entire rotation. And as you start buying yourself more recovery time over the entire rotation, guess what? You actually start growing eventually more forage than what you had previously. So it may be that, you know, if you only had four, six or eight fields initially, that that would only let, you know, you would, you would blaze through those, through those fields, you know, rather, rather quickly. Uh, but by divvying them up and confining the animals to a much smaller area and then moving the animals more frequently so that, you know, you give them maybe a three day supply in a, in a paddock, whereas, 
they would have normally had maybe a two or three week supply in that whole field. So you squeeze it down to like a three day supply. So maybe there's going to be like a dozen paddocks in that field and they're being moved about every three days. Well, then that means that when the animals are in that three day paddock, guess what? All the paddocks that are either in front or behind the animals in that same field are still in recovery mode and they're not getting grazed. Mm -hmm. So that's buying you recovery time. And then what that does is it allows more forage to actually be grown in the future. But it's more than just sticking, you can't just stick the, the, the herd just in those four, five, six, eight fields just for like three days, and then move it to the next field for three days, and the next field for three days. That's not going to work because you're going to be coming back to the starting point way too soon. That's right. And that's where divvying it down with, with you know, some temporary electric fencing and, you know, making sure that, okay, the animals for three days are on this little mini strip, you know, and there may be 12 paddocks in that one field alone. And while they're in that one paddock, guess what? The other 11 paddocks in that field are in recovery mode. Right. And the animals can't be eating on those other plants. Well, you know, it's like electric fence can be thought of as one of the best tools to control recovery period right because like in your example if you've got five fields or so and 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 you and you're divvying them up into 12 paddocks with like a single strand of of like poly wire or something for a grazing period of like three days will you take those those other 11 fields times three that's that's a 33 day like recovery period just for that pasture you're not going to come back 33 days may or may not be enough you can go to the next paddock right and and uh, to the next pasture make paddocks there too and increase that that recovery period as well and if you're on cool season perennials like you and i are those begin to slow down in late july and august a little bit and so you're going to have to really be able to 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 you know manage that recovery period not only with the tape but with how long you're on the pasture you know, during your grazing period, you may want to increase that a little bit because that will increase once again, the recovery period and allow, it's all about, it's all about recovery period. It it really is Lee. And this, I think Lee, I mean, this is the simplest and in my mind, the easiest and cheapest way of being able to get out of, uh, to to stop over grazing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because, you know, you look at it this way, if you have to have, like, let's say you need 60 days of, of regrowth in order to get yourself those, those, pat, those plants set up for winter grazing, that means from like, let's say August 1st to September 30th, no animals can go in there. And usually you've been used to going in there. Right. So then that means during that two months, well, where are the animals going to go? They yep. got to go somewhere. And so if you're not grossly overstocked to begin with, uh, now, you know, we have to preface this a little bit that if most of your pastures look like everything's been grazed down to the tabletop all the time, well, then we obviously have a forage deficit and an animal excess. You know, mm-hmm. we've got way to, we've exceeded the carrying capacity of what is there by a significant amount such that nothing is getting an opportunity to, to recover. Mm-hmm. Um, but if we're, if we're kind of on the edge, you know, just by divvying up the fields of what you'd be grazing during the summer. And then, you know, you're going to have that during that August, September period, you know, the animals are going to have to go continue going in their rotation, but you're going to have to skip these fields that you are reserving for to, to stockpile just by divvying up the fields and then making sure. And when you divvy up the fields, well, a very simple thing I like to do is taking a simple pin flag and, you know, most people have these just laying around or you can go down to just about any, you know, farm and ranch store or irrigation supplier or whatever, picking up a pin flag. And let's say you want to see more orchard grass in your pastures. Uh, orchard grass, uh, you know, up in my area, in my neck of the woods, you know, orchard grass is, is all over the place. It's a highly desirable grass, uh, very palatable, very nutritious. So if I want to see more of that plant, as soon as animals vacate a paddock, then I will go and put a pin flag next to the most severely grazed, so the orchard grass plant that was grazed down the hardest, the lowest. Mm -hmm. 
and I'll put a pin flag down there and I'll make a note of what its height is. And then I'll monitor it, you know, I'll go out every about every, you know, two weeks and monitor how much regrowth having occur on that plant. And so as the animals are going through these, this, like, let's say you've got, you know, four to eight major fields, but then you're divvying up each one of those fields into multiple paddocks. As I'm going around in the rotation, I'm going to keep monitoring that orchard grass plant in that, maybe that first paddock. And once that plant regrows and has, has, has reached recovery, then I know everything else in that little mini paddock that it was also associated with when the animals were in there is also recovered well enough. Mm-hmm. And then I know I can come back to it. Now, if we're overstocked to the level that, you know, let's say you divvy up your fields and you're coming back and guess what? The plant, the, the orchard grass plant or whatever plant you're picking in your region that is uh, a highly palatable plant, very desirable plant that you want to see more of, if that isn't recovered, then we have to use, you know, basically kind of like the pressure relief valves, the pressure relief valve strategies. Mm-hmm. And this is what, you know, we're kind of getting at here is if we're, if we're in that situation, because we've got to skip those fields that we'd normally be grazing in August and September, and which means we're putting more pressure on the existing fields that are within that rotation, then that's where we have to look at okay, if we're coming back around and these plants are not ready, what are our options? So, you know, one option is to, if we can lease additional pasture somewhere else, uh, we got to have the animals, you know, leave, leave the area. Otherwise we risk overgrazing the entire thing and the entire rotation. And guess what? We're not just overgrazing a few plants at that point, but when you compartmentalize the animals, section them down to their, you're only giving them a three-day strip or a two-day strip. And if you allow the animals to come into fields where they were grazed in that manner, and now they're going to go through and they're going to be, you know, basically like a mower, and they're going to not only overgraze a few plants, they're going to overgraze almost everything in there. And now it's like you're really shooting yourself in the foot. So that's where uh, it's really critical that we that that we make arrangements if we need to of, you know, where is there other pasture that I could potentially lease so that if I'm doing this, I'm trying to create my stockpile. If I'm coming back around and I find out things aren't ready enough, I have someplace to go. So that would be probably my 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 second or, or, or actually in this case, you know, after you know, compartmental action, you know, after divvying up the pasture into multiple paddocks and we're finding out that we're coming back too quickly, then strategy two would be leasing additional pasture. Uh, because the nice thing about leasing additional pasture, if it, if you can get it, uh, is that it doesn't require any mechanical input in it other than hauling the animals there and hauling the animals back. You know, there's no equip, other equipment involved. Mm-hmm. Now, after we've exhausted that strategy, and if that strategy isn't available, then you're looking at feeding hay to the animals during the growing season. And that can sound like uh, absolute you know, chaos to be feeding hay in the summer. Uh, but a lot of, you know, a lot of people have been able to, you know, save their, their pastures or be able, you know, to be able to, to prevent from overgrazing by feeding a little bit of hay in the summer. And that may only have to be a week or two. It may not have to be for that long, depending on your growing conditions and what's taking place. So that could just be a, just a very quick, brief, temporary stopgap measure to ensure that the animals can still continue in the same rotation while you're leaving that August and September fields alone so that they can be accumulating and creating your stockpile. The last one, and it's always my last alternative, and I think most people here will we'll guess it before I even say it, is actually reducing animal numbers to stay within the carrying capacity of the forage base. And I I always put that as the last because that's people's paycheck right there, you know? And so, so I'm like, that is the last ditch effort. But if you lease additional pasture somewhere, somewhere else, that's kind of like reducing your animal numbers, but just temporarily on those fields so that those fields can get recovered enough to be able to take the animals again. Yeah. So summer management, managing for 
you know, a winter stockpile situation, right? We've been talking about, you know, uh, grazing and uh, grazing management styles, and we've been talking about recovery and, 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 and then those pop-off valves, right? It's like, okay, this isn't working. Let's move to the winter now. Let's talk a little bit about this, uh, this pasture that we have just stockpiled, and it's ready to go into. Well, first of all, we had to determine how big it was, right? So my two questions for you for, for kind of like, I guess, maybe the rest of our little talk here would be, what should a grazer do to kind of estimate how much land they would need for their stock for the winter? And uh, so they can actually save enough grass. And then what are some strategies to actually move them across that field and to get them to, to uh, and, and, and to, I guess, a portion that, uh, that forge to them so that it lasts as long as we can throughout the winter? Okay, well, those are two great questions, Lee. Let's take the first one. Let's spend a little bit of time on that. So that first one was kind of estimating how much area you need to carry the animals through, through the winter. Right? Yeah, how are you going to guess, okay, is this field big enough? Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold this one aside. Yeah, so really, you know, on that, one thing to note is that, you know, when you've got good green growth on your grass, like let's say it's the end of September, the growing season has come to an end. And the quality of that forge at that point, if you leave it still attached, uncut, so the quality of that forge is going to slide and be reduced, the, generally the further you go into the winter and the more precipitation and the more freeze-thaw cycles and stuff like that that you end up having. Those things continuously reduce you know, forge quality over time as the plant is still, as the, as the, the above ground portion is still connected to its base. Uh, and this is where one strategy, and we haven't gotten into this too much uh, in the past, but I'm just going to mention it briefly, is windrow grazing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this would involve a tractor and a mower and maybe a rake, but it wouldn't involve a baler or retrieving bales or anything like that. But uh, windrow grazing uh, can be, uh, I would say, is kind of the next phase after you've gone through standing stockpile, then moving on to something that's been wind that that's put into windrows. And the advantage of that is, is that it helps to lock in the nutrient in that forage. So when you cut it on the stump, the, the forage quality doesn't slide as much as plants that are still connected at their base. So you, you could actually take a portion of the field and just graze it initially and then also just swath the rest of the field for, say, you're getting into December and January, right? Exactly. Because um, yeah, at least here, that's whenever you see forage really decline in, in its quality as a stockpile, you know? Exactly. Exactly. So I've kind of looked at it, you know, on the front half of winter, you're grazing standing stockpile on the back half of the winter, you may be onto windrows at that point. Yeah. Because windrows, the quality will stay intact longer, which then makes it more useful for using on the back half of winter. Because the problem is, is if you were to graze stuff that's still standing, you know, that's still connected at the base in January and February, the quality is going to be really, really low. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. But, but backing up to answering, your, answering the question, so animals have a dry matter intake requirement. And, you know, uh, you know if you've got a thousand pound animal, you know, you're probably looking at, you know, they're going to be consuming roughly, you know, 3% of their body weight per day. So that's going to be about 30 pounds of forage. And you can easily go out into a field. You can put down a hoop, you know, a, a square frame that's like 1.2 square feet in size. And if you've got, you know, uh, some little scales or whatever, you can actually calculate out, okay, so if I've got, you know, if I've got 200 head, and this is how many pounds of dry matter of forage they have to have, you know, you just think of what would they have to have in hay equivalent, right? You know, you, you know how many tons you're feeding your herd per day, you know, you usually have to, you know, okay, I, I got to grab three bales today or, or it's four bales, depending on what the herd size is. So you're trying to find that equivalent out in the pasture. And so doing just, it, it only take a matter of mere minutes to go out there, clip a little area so that you can see how much mass you actually have standing there. You can also estimate it too. You can use a grazing stick, pasture stick, mm-hmm. and they have height to weight 
equivalents there based upon forge density. It'll give you a, it'll give you a decent estimate at least. Yeah, it'll get you in the ballpark, and yeah. that's really all that we're looking for is to get in the range. Mm -hmm. And then you know you get in the range so that you know about how much to give the animals on a daily or every other day basis, and then you let the animals tell you if you are giving them enough. If you if you're meeting their requirements. So really what we're describing here are some pretty easy ways of, of figuring that out. You know, it's just a different way of looking at it. Instead of counting bales in, in the barn, you're counting pounds of grass out in the field. Per acre, right. On a per acre basis. And, yeah. then, and then you can then extrapolate that out to, well, you know, if I'm going to be grazing standing stockpile for two and a half, three months, and this is what the demands of my herd are on a daily basis, then I can easily just do the math and figure out how many acres of yep. what amount of stockpile I have there I need to have. Yep. And then that you just close the gate and let it grow. Exactly. Now, when it comes to actually allocating it, when we're in the middle of winter, there was a study done a number of years ago that looked at what, what, what is the most efficient way to allocate standing stockpile in the winter. And uh, there, the, the one study that I can think of was looking at giving the animals, I believe it was a two-week allocation, so a 14-day allocation, a one-week allocation, and then a three-day allocation. So they made the paddock proportional to the time uh -huh. that they were in that area. So the two-week-long paddock was a big area, right? It right. was a... It, it's, it's what they thought would be able to hold the animals for two weeks. Well, they did the nutritional analysis on the standing stockpile. And in the study, they found out that a 14-day allocation, what they thought the animals would need for 14 days, only held them for 10 days. Mm -hmm. So the animals after 10 days were, you know, were very unhappy. Now, is that due to a lot of trampling and fouling as well? As yeah, well, a lot of, do you yeah, think? a lot of it. Yeah. Yeah, lot, yeah, exactly. A lot of it becomes inaccessible to the animals because in a 14-day time period, there are areas where they bed down, where they foul on, all that other stuff, yep. and then it becomes inaccessible. Right. So then they looked at the week-long allocation, but the week-long allocation they found out would only hold the animals for five days. So uh, they couldn't go the full week without really starting to lose animal performance. And then the animals weren't getting their dry matter intake requirements met. But the three-day allocation predictably held the animals for all three days. Huh. And so when it comes to grazing staining stockpile, the more efficient way to use it is probably looking at doing three-day allocations and a paddock size that will hold those animals in that smaller area for the three days. Right. And then you look at animal behavior, you look at gut fill as indicators of whether you need to make that three-day paddock a little bit bigger or a little bit smaller. And obviously no field is exactly uniform, perfectly productive at the same level from one into the other. I mean, you got areas where it's lighter, you got areas where it's heavier. And so obviously that three-day paddock is going to flex and, and grow and diminish in time as you're going across the field. Right. So anyway, so yeah, so that's kind of getting back to that, the three-day allocation. I, I don't, at least the, the, the research didn't suggest you got to be out there every day moving wire. But it did suggest that at least every three days would be yeah. most beneficial. So you're talking about something like some type of sequential grazing where you just have a moving front, basically, right? And you're just moving a poly wire up or something, a exactly. thousand, you know, 100 feet or something or whatever, however big you need to go and just let them. Because you don't have to worry about a back fence on this because no, it's not no. regrowing, right? So exactly. you don't have exactly. to worry about water. You've got water access in the first paddock. It'll always be there. They come right back to it. You, all you have to do is move the wire forward every three days or so. It, it, right? Exactly. And from a logistics standpoint, winter grazing, when you look at it that way, is actually easier than summer grazing, except you're usually out there in your, in your uh, insulated over yeah, yeah. and you're hot and you're freezing and it's cold and it can be windy. And, you know, so obviously the, the, the weather doesn't make it, uh, make it easier but right. you're exactly right because now you're in the dormant period you don't have to worry about back fencing so yeah. back fencing that's only something you got to be worried about when forage is growing 
But during the winter, you're only worried about moving that front wire. And with if you've got cattle, you're only talking about one poly wire. That's yeah. it. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I mean, whenever you get the system down, you know, um, it can be pretty efficient. Um, you know, whenever you actually get, you know, dead on matching the animal requirements to the forage that's there. And that may take a season of learning, you know, and you got to give yourself exactly. some, give yourself some credit, give yourself, you know, just uh, in some grace there. And, you know, it's a learning, it's a learning opportunity because you're going to learn a lot during that, that winter grazing season, especially, you know, what the carrying capacity is. Was that, was it too big? Is it too little? Do I have enough land to, to actually stockpile all these animals? Or do I have to maybe destock 10%, you know, considering that, yeah, you're not going to have those added costs anymore. So your, your, your net may be either break even or even higher than before, not having costs associated with, with, with hay equipment and fuel and, and such. So. Yeah. And, and this is such an easy transition, especially for people who are doing uh, who are moving animals on a frequent basis during the summer. Yeah. They already know what to do. The animals they know what's yeah, going on. Exactly. Yeah. They know what to yeah. do. I mean, they'll, they'll be there standing at the wire where they normally go into the next paddock. They'll be there before you are. And it, it, just, it just makes it easy. And the animal's disposition, you know, is very calm. The animals aren't wild. And they know you and they associate you with fresh forage, you know, with good stuff. And, you know, it should be noted that, you know, virtually any forage can be stockpiled, you know, so if you've got orchard grass, if you've got nettle brome, if you've got uh, Bermuda grass, Bahia grass, just about any forage can be stockpiled, although not all forages are created equal when it comes to. Well, some are going to last a little longer into the winter as far as quality. Exactly. Just my own observation that plants that have a rougher leaf texture to them usually aren't the preferred plants during the summer, but during the winter, the frost works on that rougher leaf textured stuff and actually makes it more available and Mm -hmm. actually will hold its quality better in the winter than the stuff that's really soft leaf that when the frost hits that, it melts those leaves very quickly and they lose their nutrition very fast. Well, one thing that some folks are doing out east, like in Virginia and such, several other the eastern states who have tall fescue in their fields, right? And we know about, you know, fescue toxicosis and things, you know, it's, it, it, it makes grazing during the summer um, a challenge, to say the least, right? Well, some producers have just decided, well, you know what, I've got, I'm going to concentrate my animals in the summer on pastures that are not fescue, and I'm going to stockpile all this fescue because, because tall fescue makes an excellent stockpile forage, yeah. and, and, yeah. and you're not going to worry about toxicosis in the dormant season. So exactly. that's just another you know, way you can match up you know, your forages on your place to, I guess, take advantage of whatever characteristics that they're presenting you with, right? And, yep. and, and the fescue is a good, is a, is a good example of that. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's an excellent example. Yeah. Uh, another really good example out here out West is we have a native plant called basin wild rye. Mm-hmm. Uh, basin wild rye, it'll get six, seven feet tall. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm six foot two and I've been next to basin wild rye that I can barely touch the seed heads on. So my, mm-hmm. my hand's going over seven feet. And uh, it's a plant. Now, it doesn't have the endophyte toxicity that tall fescue does. Uh, in fact, it doesn't really have any toxicity issues, but it, it's a poor regrower. If you graze it during the summer, it doesn't regrow very well because it sends its growing point up very early. And so it'll just kind of stay stagnant if you graze it during the summer. But if for winter pasture, if I had uh, a field or two that had a lot of basin wild rye in it, really it's prime season of use is wintertime. There you go. You know, the, the quality of it, you know, will slip down to maybe about three or 4% as far as crude protein. Now, in order to maintain a, a, a cow, we're looking at 8% generally, but associated with basin wild rye, when you go on to a lot of areas that are of native range, you have things like mountain big sagebrush. Right. And sagebrush uh, you know, for all those that are out in the West that have sagebrush, sagebrush has been shown in central Nevada and Northeast Oregon to be an excellent supplier of winter protein and can actually help provide the protein needs of a cow so long as that cow is calving in May and June and not February and March. Right. 
And the reason why that is, is because sagebrush has an anti-quality factor called uh, terpenes, and the terpene content in sagebrush reaches its lowest point in January and February. And if you have, a, if you have calves that are calving May and June, they're only into their second trimester in January and February. And when the terpene content is very low, ranchers have actually been able to train their livestock to utilize the leaves of the sagebrush as a winter protein source in lieu of alfalfa hay. And then if you've got basin wild rye along in there, then you've also got something that's going to provide some bulk to it too. You know, because if you look at a basin wild rye plant, they're huge. And they it's stand a big up. bunch grass. It's a bunch. Yep. It, yeah, it's it's like our biggest bunch grass out here out mm-hmm. west. Um, you know, you can have two, three feet snow on the ground, and you can just pick these plants out. I mean, they oh, yeah. they, they stand very erect. They don't fall over when you get a heavy snow cover. So that's what really makes them uh, really advantageous for winter grazing is because they're very available. Animals can find them very easy. You combine that with plants like, you know, with like sagebrush, for instance, or if you've got antelope bitterbrush out in your rangeland community out here out west, that's an also highly, highly palatable uh, for foraged species. So, mm. you know, your shrubs tend to maintain their quality further into the winter. They can actually provide very good high protein during the winter, whereas they're not as palatable during the summer. Right. So. Man, we've covered the whole gamut of stockpiling from summer to winter. And I think the take home message that I got here is that, you know, use that winter carrying capacity to really kind of help uh, determine your overall stocking capacity, you know, and then and then focus your summer on maintaining that right maintaining and make sure you have good hay and good you know standing hay in the ground and then keep a couple keep a couple of months in the barn right i mean who knows what type of emergency you might have you know but this can certainly reduce feed costs uh you know in fertilizing hay fields all of that right it it can it can it can do some serious cost reductions i think is 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 what we're looking at absolutely absolutely i mean i look at uh, your summer grazing management, which then will allow you to do to to plan for stockpiling forage for the winter, combined with calving in sync with nature. I mean, those are three big things right there that can really suck the cost out of an operation. So, Justin, I, I really thank you for joining me today, you know, with your expertise and helping us to think about, you know, winter stockpile solutions uh, before we close up, you have any other final thoughts that you'd like to leave with us? You know, I guess the final thought is that no matter what situa- situation you're in, there is a way forward. There is a way to be able to gradually reduce the amount of hay that you have to, to feed. And uh, there is great joy on the other end. You know, when you get your herd size and your winter carrying capacity in sync with each other, because it provides so many other opportunities, not the least of which is improved profitability. Awesome. And with that, I'm going to thank you again, Justin. It's always great to have these talks together and uh, we'll, we'll be doing it again for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Lee. Good stuff, man. So everybody just, um, know that Atra puts out podcasts every week on topics that range from animal health to specialty crops to even producer profiles that we do where we introduce you to like innovative people and how they're dealing with profitability while doing things like building soil health and and increasing carry capacity and 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 you know and trying to keep their water in the soil where it belongs. Um, next time that Justin and I get together on the Voices from the Field podcast, which will be probably sometime in September, I'm thinking what we'd like to do perhaps is to take a deep dive into plant root exudation and kind of look at the interplay between photosynthesis and carbon to carbon dioxide and water. That's something that came up from our uh, advanced grazing webinar that I think we'd like to dig deep into. So be on the lookout for that. You won't want to miss this episode and more. Uh, So be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or on Google or our YouTube channel and go on atra.incat.org and get our newsletter and keep keep up to date with what's going on. Thanks again, Justin, and uh, we'll do this again. All right. Sounds great, Lee. Thank you so much. (laughs) And thank you, everyone, for tuning in. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. 
Additional information about this episode and related resources can be found at atra.incat.org. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe to Voices from the Field wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, Rich Myers. ATRA, Voices from the Field, is produced by the National Center for Appropriate Technology, headquartered in Butte, Montana. It's supported by the USDA Rural Business Cooperative Service as part of NCAT's ATRA Sustainable Agriculture Program. Any opinions, findings, conclusions, or recommendations expressed in this recording are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the USDA or NCAT. We'll catch you again next week, and until then, keep on farming.